0: Hello, good afternoon and welcome to this Euractiv event entitled Data Privacy Post-Covid. What has changed and where do we go now? Sponsored by Cisco. The next phase in Europe's privacy agenda is taking shape with the release of updated standard contractual clauses, a proposed UK adequacy decision and of course transatlantic talks on the successor to the Privacy Shield. Moreover, big tech firms continue to face the scrutiny of national data protection authorities across the EU, but to date how much has the work of authorities had a tangible impact on the behaviour of some of the world's largest technology companies, many of whom have been able to access more and more of our personal data in the context of the coronavirus, where the mass transition to remote working and living has highlighted the need for seamless data protection standards across all vocational and personal activities. As part of today's event, we're going to get stuck into some of these topics in detail with an impressive lineup of speakers and panelists. My name's Samuel Stolton, and I will be moderating today's panel. We'll be commencing with an opening address and short Q&A with Vice President of the European Commission for Values and Transparency, Vera Jourova as part of a pre-recorded item that we filmed earlier on today. Then we'll hear from Director for Data Privacy at Cisco, Robert Waitman, who will present a study entitled Forged by the Pandemic, the Age of Privacy. After that, we'll commence our panel discussion, which features some fantastic names this afternoon. We have Christopher Hoff, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Services at the US Department of Commerce. Of course, he is also intimately involved with the negotiations on the EU-US Privacy Shield uh, review on that one. We've also got Helen Dixon, Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner. We've got Bojana Bellamy, President at the Centre for Information Policy Leadership. And we've got Chris Gow, Senior Director at uh, Cisco for EU Public Policy and Government Affairs. As always, you can get involved with the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag EA events and I'm expecting quite a few questions from the audience on this one so please feel free to participate by using the Q&A functionality on the platform when it goes live. And just to remind you that this event is being recorded. So without further ado let's turn to Vice President for Values and Transparency Vera Yarova and take a look at her keynote address and brief exchange of questions with me earlier this afternoon.
1: Thank you very much, uh, and thank you for organizing this event and for putting together such interesting group of speakers. The conversation about data protection and privacy is a global conversation, and I am very happy about that. Data protection and privacy, just like all fundamental rights, are even more important in the context of pandemic and the increased digitization of our lives. To me, it is clear that to preserve rights, especially in a digital reality, we need comprehensive rules that confer enforceable rights to individuals. A modern approach to regulation with a core set of individual rights are key to the response to the global challenges we face today. And this stretches all the way from election campaigning through artificial intelligence Internet of Things to the COVID-19 pandemic reality. Let me go into the topic of GDPR in the COVID-19 context. One of the things the COVID-19 pandemic made us realize, probably more than ever before, is how privacy is fundamental in preserving our freedom even in difficult times to fight the virus or help to the recovery of our economies, innovative digital solutions can really make a difference. If we want these solutions to be reliable and effective, citizens need to trust them. Robust data protection safeguards therefore are a key component of that trust. Contrary to what we sometimes hear, we do not have to choose between on the one hand, the protection of personal data, and on the other hand, public health, security, or economic well being. Rather than involving such false trade offs, privacy is a prerequisite for allowing citizens to embrace innovative solutions without fear. And we have experienced that on the ground in the last year. As we concluded in the GDPR evaluation report published in June 2020, our data protection rules provide for a flexible legal framework, which is fit for purpose also in time of the COVID-19 pandemic. In particular, the Commission put forward common standards of privacy safeguards for apps supporting the fight against COVID-19. This helped develop voluntary and secure contact tracing and warning apps that respect people's privacy and are interoperable so that these apps work seamlessly uh, everywhere in the EU, across borders, and across operating systems. Embedding privacy protections in the fight against COVID-19 is also part of our current work in developing an EU-wide digital green certificate. This certificate will include basic data, such as the result of the test or information about vaccine to help retain free movement of people across Europe. And above all, this is about preserving who we are. Our values and rights should not be a collateral damage of COVID-19. Let me be clear about one thing. Data protection and privacy is part of the solution. It is a solution today in response to the pandemic, but also more generally as technology continues to transform our lives in ways previously unknown to us. This is also why I am very pleased to have a glimpse of the results of the 2021 data privacy study called Forged by the Pandemic, the Age of Privacy that is presented today. I see that organizations that invest in privacy and get privacy right actually profit from this. Indeed, they appear to have a return on investment in several areas from reducing sales delays and enabling innovation to achieving greater operational efficiency and building loyalty and trust with their customers. The other side of the coin is that customers shun organizations that are not transparent about their data practices and protection. It is also encouraging that the study shows that the commitment to privacy has strengthened during the pandemic. I'm happy that customers and businesses acknowledge that setting a consistent set of rules for data protection can boost users' confidence. And I have always believed that we need to create a virtuous circle between robust privacy rights, enhanced consumers' confidence and contribution to sustainable economic development, be it online and offline. The pandemic also showed how data flows are essential to so many aspects of our life, be it trade, continuity of business, governmental, educational, or cultural activities, but also simply social interactions. The question is how to effectively protect individual rights like privacy in our borderless, interconnected digital world, where transferring data takes a click or two, and how to do it in respect of our EU data protection standards. This question has become even more relevant after the Schrems II ruling. The court required effective mechanisms that make it possible in practice to ensure compliance with the level of protection required by EU law. Our answer in the EU, since the first piece of European legislation in 1995, is not to erect barriers, but to create bridges, to be open and allow data to flow provided that there is continuity of protection. Promoting strong privacy standards and data flows and thus trade can and should be complementary objectives. The way I see it, we are facing similar global challenges and I'm glad to see an interesting number of countries are converging towards putting in place modern data protection regimes. And this is a truly global trend running from Brazil to Japan, from California to Korea, or from Kenya to India. In a world that is often fragmented, this is interesting and increasing convergence, which offers new opportunities to harness the digital economy. The recent statement of the G7 leaders of the 19th of February this year on the economic recovery from COVID 19 referred to facilitating data free flows with trust. And I believe there is, a now, there is now a momentum to work amongst like minded partners and to reap the tangible benefits of this convergence. This is why the EU continues to roll out an ambitious agenda on international data flows. In January 2019, with their mutual adequacy decisions, the EU and Japan created the world's largest area of safe data flows. We are currently also about to conclude negotiations of a similar deal with South Korea. And we have also started discussing with other Asian and Latin American countries. Closer to us, as you probably know, on the 19th of February this year, the Commission launched the adoption process for two adequacy decisions for transfers of personal data to the United Kingdom. This is an important component of our new relationship with the United Kingdom. Our plan is to adopt these adequacy decisions in the coming months after having received an opinion of the European Data Protection Board and a vote from member states' representatives in the framework of so-called comitology procedure. In the meantime, data can flow between the EU and the United Kingdom through a so-called bridging clause provided by the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Another priority is to develop a successor arrangement to the Privacy Shield after its invalidation by the Court of Justice in the Schrems II Judgment. And this time, we need to get it right. We understand and welcome that there is a similar willingness of the U, uh, on the US side. Our teams have been in contact over the past months at technical level, and we are ready to build on this exploratory work and intensify our talks. I am delighted to see Mr. Christopher Hoff, who heads these talks on the US side, participating in today's event. He will probably share with us his take on the upcoming negotiations. But I am sure that we can all agree that the only way to ensure stability of data flows and deliver the legal certainty that stakeholders are, Uh, we have to develop a new instrument that is fully compliant with the standards set out by the case law of the European Court of Justice, including in its Schrems II judgment. Finding a legally solid and sustainable agreement is in our mutual interest. We understand that there are complex and sensitive issues that relate to the delicate but crucial balance between national security and privacy at the same time i believe that as like-minded partners we should be able to find appropriate solutions as we have to address principles that are cherished on both sides of the atlantic to name some access to court Enforceable individual rights and limitations against disproportionate interferences with privacy? And should it be possible for the US to develop solutions on these issues with a close partnership such as the EU? To me, these discussions go beyond data protection. As democracies, we cherish very similar values. And we need to use them as our compass in many of today's discussions be it 5g ai or even our approach to social media and now with the president biden's administration we feel in europe that the united states as we know them are back i actually believe that this provides an opportunity for the EU and US to develop a framework that builds on shared values of human dignity, democratic principles, and the rule of law. I dare to say that democracy without strong privacy and data protection will expose itself to a many risks stemming from the digital world. Together with like-minded partners, The EU and the US should intensify their cooperation to address the issues that threaten our shared freedoms and values, including the propagation of hate speech and disinformation, threats to electoral integrity or the governance of artificial intelligence. I can only hope that the US administration will see it in similar way and that we will be able to work together at bilateral and multilateral level. I am thinking, for instance, of the very promising ongoing work on developing common standards to facilitate data flows for access to data by public authorities. I cannot agree more with what State Secretary Blinken said a few days ago in his first major foreign policy speech. He said, now the quote, we know that new technologies are not automatically beneficial and those who use them don't always have good intentions. We need to make sure technologies protect your privacy make the world safer and healthier and make democracies more resilient. And we are going to bring our friends and partners together to shape behavior around emerging technologies and establish uh, quadrice against misuse. I can assure Secretary Blinken that we in the EU are certainly ready to work with the US on these issues. In Europe, We are proud of making our approach to digital transition based strongly on values and innovation. This is the only way to reap the economic benefits, while at the same time provide security for people and create conditions for them to develop trust to this innovation. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much for your keynote address there, Vice President Eurova. I'd like to follow up on a couple of the points that you made there in your speech, particularly with regards to EU-US data transfers. On the privacy shield, where exactly are we at the moment with regards to the current stage of negotiations? And there are rumors that U.S. representatives may soon present a text to the Commission. And I wonder if you could give us an insight into what you expect from your American counterparts and what exactly do they have to do to make this agreement legally watertight and avoid the possibility of a Schrems three.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for this question. It's it's a little bit painful uh, uh, topic for me, because I uh, truly believe that we did everything necessary after Schrem's one case uh, and, and the ruling of the court, uh, that we uh, created a system which was possible to call Uh, privacy shield, uh, the shield which will protect privacy on the other side of the Atlantic. And I was aware uh, when we finalized the negotiations that several uh, weak points remained in the system uh, which needed to be healed on American side, especially the rules uh, and uh, the transparency uh, when it comes to uh, national security systems. Uh, the, we needed absolute certainty that there will not be any mass surveillance. That there will be the probable cause uh, always in place, uh, well justified, which will enable the, the security or agencies to reach for the private data of Europeans. And also, what was more important for me over the whole my, my previous mandate, I was really heavy lobbying, heavily lobbying in the Congress to convince the American legislators to adopt the federal law on privacy, which would resemble the GDPR, of course not copy-paste uh, exercise, but but the federal law which would uh, contain the, the principles uh, of of protection of privacy and private data of people. And this is, didn't happen. And I was aware that uh, this is the weak point. So the the court judgment. Uh, disappointed me, but also didn't surprise me too much. And I said in my speech before that we have to do it again and better or to do it right this time. So we are now working on two ways, on short-term and and longer-term solution for the short term you know that we are preparing the guidelines for the use of the standard contractual clauses and and the the recommendation also is is being prepared uh, in cooperation with the European data protection board uh, just to create the legal certainty for the for the data flows which uh, are still up and running and which need to be done uh, with in full compliance with the the legal order. This is the short term. I believe that uh, we can bridge the the, term, the time before we have the long long term solution in place. And here, I need very strong cooperation from the side of the American administration. And I, I, I wonder what we will hear from, from Mr. Hoff, because uh, we need a proactive approach. We need a recognition of the need to strengthen the protection of privacy on American side on, on in the United States. We need to get more guarantees that we will have uh, better insight in whether the the standards for protection are, are fully, uh, fully recognized and, and uh, applied, uh, especially on the, on the national security uh, side. So this long-term solution, I cannot predict how long it will take, but uh, I would like us to, to intensively discuss the possibilities to uh, upgrade the system so that it uh, withstand the, the requirements uh, of the European Court.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Just to follow up on the point there that you made, Vice President, on national security, how exactly do we pitch this balance between national security and privacy? And actually, in your opinion, can EU personal data ever be safe on American soil so long as the US have such a broad surveillance regime in place?
1: Hmm. Well, this is a a very... uh, how to say explosive battlefield (laughs) this uh, these two when you look at it two extremes absolute protection of individual rights including privacy and absolute power of the state which is totalitarian regime in fact yeah the the omnipotent state which can uh uh, organize any kind of of intrusive surveillance and which which has uh, fully under control everything you are doing as a citizen so this is an issue everywhere, also in the European Union, <clears throat> because we keep balancing these two principles in everything we are doing. Uh, we will soon uh, discuss the rules for the artificial intelligence, that this is this is exactly the topic where we will have to define the balance. Uh, and coming back to the United States, well, uh, we always wanted to uh, have stronger safeguards and stronger guarantee that uh, there might be uh, the, the investigation which will require the private data of, of the people who uh, appear in, in, in some investigations. But it must never be the mass surveillance uh, case for some future cases to come. Uh, no mass collection of data without the probable cause and this is exactly also the the principle which we which we have in the European Union uh, for the for the criminal investigations we always uh, have the principle uh, of necessity and proportionality to be respected by the law enforcement authorities so what what I found very difficult was, to understand better the system to have absolute guarantee that the mass surveillance will not happen that the pri- private data of European people will not be abused, uh, I am skeptical I think we can never have 100% uh, certainty. Uh, and, but we have to get closer to that and we also need more trust i, I guess uh, and i am afraid on on the on the side of the united states because for instance to, to invite you to the to, to my kitchen when i was negotiating privacy shield i wanted to design or to define somebody on a european side which will have the necessary security clearance to receive the information about the investigations uh, in case of complaints from the european citizens that they have been investigated and they that they have information that their private data has been used in investigations and it was never allowed by the american side they always wanted to have this body on their side and here came uh, the ombudsman to the scene uh to to the whole system and i of course, uh, trusted uh, the, the ombudsperson, the both uh, representatives who did the job. But of course it was part and is part of the American administration. So the full impartiality also could not be guaranteed. So sorry to be a bit technical, but uh, this is also about the sensitive issue, whether we trust uh, each other enough uh, and we will have to do our homework on that as well.
0: Vice-President Jerova, I would love to chat to you for a lot longer, but unfortunately we're out of time here in the studio and I imagine you have a lot on your schedule as well. But thank you very much for joining us here this afternoon.
1: Thank you very much and have a good day.
0: There is lots of food for thought there uh, as part of our interview with VP Yurova. Um I'm sure we'll be able to address some of that in our following discussions. But before we get to all that, it's time to hear from Director for data privacy at Cisco, Robert Waitman, who will talk to us about a new study entitled Forged by the Pandemic, the Age of Privacy.
2: Thank you, Sam. So, what happens when our personal safety and well being come into conflict with our desire to protect our information, as it did during this pandemic? In the past, we've often seen that the, the requirements for safety often come first and data protection often gets pushed aside in the interest of keeping us safe. Governments and companies and others collect a lot of information to try to make sure that we are safe. But remarkably, during this pandemic, and as Vice President Yarova has indicated, that was not the case. So despite the need for our health information, our location information, our contacts, being important in controlling the spread of the virus, based on our research, individuals and corporations have reaffirmed their commitments to protecting data going forward. Uh, I'm Robert Waitman, I'm Director of, of Data Privacy at Cisco. I've had the pleasure of looking over our research program over the past five years in, as in, into privacy, a remarkable period of time in which privacy has gone from something relatively uh, little known through an era of legislation emerging around the world uh, compliance certainly requirements but now has become a boardroom issue and an important driver of trust and economic value for companies and so i'm going to touch on just a couple of these insights from our latest research over the next four minutes to give a little food for thought uh, for the panelists to come so on the next slide i'll just give you a little overview of what we've done and this was our broadest and widest uh, survey to date. Um, this surveyed over 4,700 security and privacy professionals done anonymously. So we don't know who was filling it out and they didn't know it was Cisco asking across 25 countries and across a range of companies from different uh, from, from different sizes and different industries. And, and just to give you a couple of the highlights, and at the end, I'll tell you where you can get more information, but things that I think might be relevant for the panel today, um, a couple of things. So on the next slide, Um, talk about the response with respect to the pandemic. And as Vice President Yoruba has indicated, privacy protections were very much maintained during this pandemic. We saw that, and this is among individuals around the world, that over 60% of them said no privacy law should be suspended or very few um people have gotten used to and value the protections that have come from the privacy requirements that we've put in place and only 10 percent said hey we should push this stuff aside in order to protect our public health and this is part of the reason that so many organizations turned to their privacy teams during this pandemic to help them navigate the challenges ahead making privacy part of the solution not part of the problem if you go to the next slide we'll look at um, one of the big issues and again a remarkable issue in terms of um, How regulation has been so well received, you know, I would challenge people to think about a a set of compliance requirements put on organizations around the world that they would be happy with. Um, they it involves cost and doing work and subjecting them potentially to fines and other penalties, but yet privacy is a remarkable exception to that and if if you look around the world across all 25 countries we asked organizations, whether they saw the privacy laws as being positive or negative um, with respect to their work and, uh, and, and organization. And you see the numbers here uh, in the green part of the boxes. Um, which averages 79% across the world. And in Europe, you can see the numbers all between uh, mid 70s and mid 80s. So, you know, 80% positive versus literally single digits of organizations saying that the privacy laws were a negative and a drag on their organizations 80 to 6, you know, 76 to 4. Um, and again, a remarkable statement that where we are, that privacy laws have filled a, such an important void. Um, in regulation, providing protections for customers and for consumers to know that how their data is being used um, is being done properly. Again, a worldwide uh, phenomenon and something that I think we should think about trying to make sure that that continues, even as we move to more and more regulation, perhaps, and trying to avoid uh, conflicting uh, regulation in many cases. Um, So besides the the regulatory piece, it's also a strong business driver. And If you look at the next slide, we'll talk about some of the economic value that has been associated uh, with privacy over the years. And this is something we've been tracking for five years and more looking back to some of the early areas of business value that privacy was delivering, such as reducing the sales delays associated with customers' privacy questions, or seeing the mitigation of losses associated with security events, where privacy provided protections of data that otherwise might've been exposed. Um, And what organizations are telling us is that privacy investment seems to be a very attractive thing still to this day, with over a third of them recognizing they are getting at least twice their return of their privacy investment in terms of business value. Some of the things I've mentioned and organizational agility and the value of the corporation going forward. And and very few feel that it's not been a worthwhile investment. Um, The overall average on on this across our 4,700 companies uh, was about 1.9. And that's still very attractive from an economic standpoint. It is down a little bit from last year where it was 2.7. Again, raising some concerns that we want to make sure going forward you know that the the requirements that we're putting on organizations are in fact turning into and delivering value. Um, perhaps some of the data localization requirements, certainly the pandemic as one, um, and some of the other additional issues that put additional requirements without necessarily returning value. I know something that the the panel will probably touch on. So I've given you a little flavor of some of what we've learned in some of this research. Um, You know, we see that the pandemic has in fact strengthened everyone's commitment to privacy. Um, We see the the positive reaction to regulation around the world and the economic value that's been associated with privacy investment to date. Something that we would obviously all like to see continue going forward. Anyone who would like to get more information on this, um, all of our research is available at trust.cisco.com and can look forward to it. And um, back to you, Sam, and turn it over to the panel.
0: Thank you very much, Robert, for your presentation there. And I'm sure a lot of the insights that you shared as part of the new report can feature in our following discussion. Uh, just a reminder to all of you tuning in remotely that you're encouraged to submit your questions to us through the Q&A functionality of the platform. And they will eventually make their way to me. Um, I would like to commence our panel discussion now, um, and we have our four experts joining us here this afternoon. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedules today. Um, Let's jump straight into it then, and I think perhaps it would be most appropriate to start uh, with Christopher Hoff from the US uh, Department of Commerce, obviously overseeing the Privacy Shield talks as well. Having heard Vice President Yarova's remarks earlier, and particularly her references to certain weak points in the Privacy Shield Agreement that need to be healed, of course she raised concerns about the US's national surveillance regime, but also her support for federal privacy law in the United States. Could I get your response to those two points, and are you able to disclose anything to us on the status of talks between the US and the EU on this agreement?
3: Thanks, Sam. Um, Yeah, I'm happy to, happy and honored to start the conversation. Uh, And I I was very, very pleased to hear Vice President Yarova's comments, uh, conciliatory comments about uh, the cooperation uh, among like-minded democracies and with the United States. Um, I should mention that, or remind people that we're only seven weeks into the new administration of which I'm a part. But because it's only been seven weeks and and I'm just a part of it, uh, what I say shouldn't shouldn't, um, be construed as speaking for the entire administration, Uh, we're still building up. In fact, our Secretary of Commerce uh, joined us last week, so she's been here for six days and we are very, very happy to have her and she has been briefed up on Privacy Shield uh, by my team. and at the same time, there is an entire group of uh, dedicated and awesome senior career uh, civil servants who have been working on these issues um, the entire time. So, so we're not reinventing the wheel or starting uh, from scratch by any means. Um, and there is a vast interagency process that that the Privacy Shield negotiation requires. Um, We have our intelligence community involved, the Department of Justice, the Director of National Intelligence, um, the State Department, us at the the Department of Commerce and and many others. There are a lot of people who are very involved in these discussions as they have to be. Um, And we're all working uh, quickly towards a solution. Um, Secretary Raimondo, uh, Commerce Secretary Raimondo, said in her Senate hearing that she is uh, making Privacy Shield, uh, finalizing the Privacy Shield renegotiation a top priority. Um, that is true. And it's true uh, from, the, from the bottom to the top. Everybody that I've ever spoken with in the administration or transition team um, has been so well briefed on Privacy Shield and the transatlantic data flows issues um, that there's there are promising signs that we are all working. We're all on the same page. Um, and when it comes to uh, you know our relationship with the, the commission, we do have a good uh, technical and working relationship with DG Justice, and we're grateful for that. And I think we are all trying to work towards um, you know we're all trying to be pragmatic and open-minded, uh, and and ambitious and quick about this because um, you know for us it's been seven weeks in the new administration, but for the world uh, of which I was just a part as a chief privacy officer oh, just over a month and a half ago. Um have been waiting for eight months since the Shrimps 2 ruling. So uh, there's a real sense of, of urgency on our part. There's also an opportunity to um, you know restart the transatlantic relationship. And there's so much great cooperation going on between our leadership right now. So um, though I won't be able to share details of the negotiation, I will say that um, the Shrimps 2 court holding addressed a limited set of issues, and they were related to national security data collection, the ombudsperson, and so that is what the conversation is focused on. Uh, the, the, the U.S., um, and I, I don't think the commission either, see uh, U.S. federal privacy legislation as part and parcel with this discussion. That's not what the court focused on. The court court did not um, dismay the the commercial principles of Privacy Shield, for example. It focused on one thing, and that's what we're that's what we're focused on enhancing so that we can restore some balance um, and steady ground. Um, we also do want it to be as future proof as possible. So it's a it's a tricky conversation and balance. There's a lot of uh, internal negotiation going on in the US government, um, but I, we're all trying to be very forward leaning and come to a solution because like I said, for the, the world, this has been eight months. Um, for government, we're moving quickly. Uh, Absolutely, but but for everybody else, um, it's, been, it's been a long time and, and they're ready for a solution.
0: Okay, thank you, Christopher. Um, I'd like to bring in Helen Dixon here now, Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner, um, following on from your mar- remarks there, Christopher, and perhaps examining the challenges that we have here in the European Union at the moment with regards to international data transfers. Um, Helen, when we're talking about privacy in a post-TREMS2 world, Your office in August issued a provisional order stating that Facebook's data transfer mechanism, the standard contractual clauses, cannot in practice be used. The order was then frozen by the Irish High Court. Um, When are we likely to hear a final decision on this from the courts in Ireland, and how crucial will this decision be to the future of transatlantic data
4: flows? Hi, Sam. Uh, I I think ultimately what falls out of um, the High Court ruling in relation to the stay, the freezing, as you put it, and the ultimate conclusion of that inquiry, that the DPC commenced into Facebook's transfers will be significant. Um, You're quoting that we issued a provisional order. Of course, that's on foot of a story that the Wall Street Journal broke. In fact, what we did is on foot of the judgment of the CJU in July, we commenced an inquiry in relation to Facebook's transfers to the U.S. uh, And uh, we issued preliminary views to Facebook in order to invite their submissions. Uh, And it was at that point that they sought a judicial review from the High Court. So in terms of your question about when we might see a judgment from the High Court around the uh, grounds of judicial review that, that Facebook lodged, It's possible we'll get a judgment uh, next month in April from the High Court, but there's no certainty. It hasn't indicated when it will rule, but it did say uh, it would look at it uh, as soon as possible. Um, Depending on the judgment from the court, if if the court lifts the stay on the inquiry, the DPC uh, will continue to progress it. Uh, It will agree a timeline with Facebook uh, to have it make its submissions. Uh, to us on the issues that we've raised, and and we'll take it from there. So the timelines are unclear, but um, we expect that there should be a judgment relatively soon from the Irish High Court.
0: Okay, thank you, Helen. Um, And I just wonder if you can give us a taste of any conversations you've had with Facebook since the initial decision from the courts to freeze uh, the DPC's preliminary decision.
4: Well, the discussions that we've had with Facebook have been uh, across a virtual courtroom uh, at the Irish High Court hearing. Um, Because the matter has been litigated, uh, that's appropriately where the conversations have taken place. Um, It's clear for Facebook and and a lot of companies operating in the EU that this is an area of uh, considerable stress. Uh, Companies are concerned. Uh, that, notwithstanding that it was Privacy Shield that was struck down by the Court of Justice of the European Union, the pronouncements of the CJU on US laws and practices were very, very clearly stark um, statements in the judgment and clarifications that the judge rapporteur, uh, Judge Thomas von Danwitz, has made since, uh, have made companies concerned. Uh, in relation to the compliance of the transfer. So uh, in, in many ways, the Irish GPC is looking forward to a decision from the high court so that we can progress or not progress in a concrete case uh, and start examining the issues that the CJU judgment has thrown up in concreto because otherwise the debates and discussions simply carry on.
0: Thanks Helen. Um, I'd like to turn to a couple of our questions uh, coming through on the Q&A now and perhaps this is one for Chris Gow. Um, We have a question related to the coronavirus pandemic and we have one of our audience members who asks how does our panel feel about vaccine passports and the various privacy risks related to that and I wonder Chris perhaps here you can address uh, this balance that we're trying to fine tune at the moment between innovation, uh, fostering innovation as part of the pandemic, while also maintaining high data protection standards.
5: Thanks, Sam. Uh, I think with vaccine passports, it's one of a number of issues that, at least from a business point of view, that we're having to work through right now, actually, as we're looking at the path through to the return to office, you know, what we do with travel, how we treat our, our employees, whether we gather data from them um, uh, to understand their health status, you know, how we're going to implement this, a lot of that has these privacy type implications, which is why, frankly, I think privacy teams have been so central to understanding uh, the pandemic from the point of view of businesses. Actually, to borrow again from the study that we uh, that Robert just uh, gave highlights from. 93% of organisations actually turn to their privacy teams to help them deal with the uh, with the COVID pandemic. So we've seen that you know COVID has certainly had a, a massive impact in putting privacy teams central in the the organisation and are helping to work through our, our issues which are there.
0: Thank you very much, um, Bojana Bellamy. I'd like to bring you in here now. Perhaps going back to our previous discussions on. EU and US relations in the prism of data protection. Um, What's your stance on a federal privacy regime in the US? Do you think this would perhaps assist our negotiations with the US in the privacy domain? Uh, And there is obviously the very real possibility that we may see a fractured landscape across the states um, as more and more states themselves adopt privacy legislations while others don't. Um, What's your position on federal privacy
6: law in the US? Sam, I would certainly certainly like to see federal uh, privacy law uh, in the US. I think the time has come for US to seriously consider that. Uh, this is a topic that is actually bipartisan, it's not split on partisan lines anymore. And that's good because US is also realising, just like we are realising that, in fact, Ability to share and use data in this post COVID world and to push for economic growth and recovery is is a primary motivation and you need that trust, you need that, you know, the privacy uh, level playing field for that to happen, there are some. um, outstanding issues around um, US federal privacy, the private right of action, the preemption of uh, federal uh, law uh, versus states. And this is really interesting debate. And I think maybe US can also see what we in Europe have gone through with our GDPR. Remember, we wanted to have a single rule, single law in the EU to enable the single digital market, to enable EU to share data our startups to get the scales of data and efficiencies that US always has had. And so it's really important to have that sort of uniform, harmonized uh, way of dealing with data and data privacy. And if US doesn't have a federal privacy law, they're going to end up with the patchwork of state laws we've just seen California. Now it's Virginia. Washington will be next, and New York, and so on and so forth. And I don't think that helps uh, enable effective use of data within the US. So I do hope that we end up for all these reasons with the federal privacy law. Now, last point. Will it help the privacy shield negotiations and general um, data flows? Well, I think the optics will be very important. Um, I think that is something that Europe would take into account. But remember, our quarrel, if you like, with the US at the moment uh, and the rest of the world is because um, uh, the European Court of Justice has put that very high bar of essential equivalence for all data transfers all around the world. So in respect of national security, intelligence, um, uh, agencies' use of data. So it is that that needs to change. Federal privacy law would not affect and would not deal with the national security use of data, but it would help the optics.
0: Thank you, Bojana. This is really interesting. Uh, Christopher Hoff, I'd like to bring you back in here now. A patchwork of state laws in the data protection world—is this something that you're concerned about?
3: It is, uh, and now I'm going to definitely speak for myself as a privacy lawyer uh, and a chief privacy officer. A month ago, um, it is. I, I, as a privacy lawyer in the in in the U.S. and probably all over the world. Uh, I do support federal privacy legislation, and there are there are a lot of other equities in the U.S. government that, that are developing policy around that and moving towards that goal. I'd say where, where the International Trade Administration, which is where I sit at the Department of Commerce, fits into that is making sure that um, whatever we come up with um, federally is interoperable and that we... Uh, recognize frameworks like the APEC cross-border privacy rules um, and work with the OECD principles, uh, because I think that those global frameworks are important as uh, a lot of countries follow the GDPR model, um, which which has adequacy, of course. Um, So uh, international frameworks that are interoperable are very important to the conversation. and That's the part of the conversation that I'm most involved in. But as a general matter, I am uh, 100% with Boyan on this.
0: Okay, thanks. Um, Christopher, I just want to press you on another uh, topic as well with regards to standard contractual clauses. So the US government issued a white paper in last, last year that I believe was a response to the uh, recommendations and the guidance put out by the European Data Protection Board on standard contractual clauses. Um, how has that EDPB's advice been received generally in the US?
3: Um, I, I will I'll, resp- <laughs> I'll respond diplomatically to that because it's 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 a little bit difficult I I think to uh, comply with the EDPB advice on it uh, our white paper that, that you referenced uh, is certainly an attempt by us and I think that has been well received in the U.S. by industry to assist uh, organizations with with the burden that they've that has been placed on them in making determinations about uh, sufficiency of law it raises a lot of great points. Um, with regard to the fact that most of the data that we handle is is not of interest to the intelligence community. Um, I I will say since you brought up standard contractual clauses that, and this is absolutely worth mentioning, um, because it's a a part of the broader discussion, any solution, any enhancement that we uh, develop with regard to Privacy Shield right now, um, because it focuses on national security and the intelligence community data collection, um, and the ombudsperson mechanism; those will apply across the board, uh, regardless of the valid data transfer mechanism used in the United States. So, the uh, you know whatever it looks like, executive action, the the enhanced ombudsperson, um, and and mechanisms around that will apply to companies using standard contractual clauses as well. And so, it will steady that ground as well. It is not just a privacy shield solution that we're coming to. Uh, And that's the same for the original Privacy Shield, the Ombudsperson, the national security safeguards and transparency related to all data transfers, even though we negotiated it as part of Privacy Shield. So we're doing the same thing again. Um, So we will we're we're absolutely killing two birds with one stone uh, on on that work, which is important because. uh, and has uh, an upcoming decision to make with regard to standard contractual clauses. So what we're doing now, we hope, will address the concerns related to that as well.
0: Indeed. Um, Helen, coming back to the ecosystem here in the European Union and speak about enforcement, uh, the DPC itself has come in for its fair share of stick uh, with regards to enforcement. Some critics have been saying that um, the DPA simply hasn't been quick enough to dish out fines. Um, Off the top of my head, I believe the last one that you issued was the €450,000 fine against Twitter in December, but correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, What's the biggest challenge to enforcement procedures for you? Are we talking about the difficulty of working with other EU authorities as part of the one-stop-shop mechanism? Is it staffing? Is it budget? I know in the past you've asked for... Uh, more money than the Irish government has been able to issue you with. Um, What exactly is the story here in terms of the lack of punitive decisions? And actually, is there a lack of punitive decisions at all? Or is this the speed that we should expect going forward?
4: Yeah, I I like your last question because that's where I was (laughs) going to start at. Um, let me mention an opinion from Advocate General Bobek that issued in January of this year in a case of the Belgian Facebook versus the Belgian DPA. One of the statements he made in that opinion is that the legal framework set up by the GDPR is still in its infancy. And this is absolutely the case. And so we see more informed commentators like Eduardo Oosteran in the UK, like Chris Hufnagel in the US, Pointing out that the GDPR enforcement model is of a particular setup and that it is going to deliver over time, but you're not going to expect it to happen overnight. And already uh, law firms and practitioners are citing the example of the Irish DPC's decision in the case of Twitter as an example now of the pathway forward and what can be built on. Um, So you said that was the last fine we issued. In fact, the DPC issued eight fines, uh, or was it seven last year, and one then concluded this year. Um, They weren't all cross-border cases, of course. The Twitter one was the only cross-border. But you have EU data protection authorities, including those that regulate large platforms. They're not exclusively in Ireland, even though we have some of the largest you have eu dpas that have yet to issue a fine and i don't say that as any kind of criticism Uh, in in fact i understand why it takes time to set up what is procedurally and substantively a, a complex new framework for anyone who's actually looked at the published article 60 decision in the case of twitter and the published article 65 decision from the european data protection board That will give you an example of the type of procedural complexity that we're dealing with. Now, you asked me, I think, in the the series of questions you asked me there, whether the one-stop shop itself contributes to the length of time it takes to issue uh, punitive uh, sanctions in certain cases, and of course it does. I mean, for starters, we're ex-post regulators and ex-post enforcers, so we're coming in after the fact. But in terms of cross-border cases, This is a very novel form of co-decision making that's been prescribed in the GDPR. Not only, for example, in the Twitter case, did the co-decision making part of the decision making take over five months. We put the draft decision through Article 60 in May. We did not issue a final decision to Twitter until December. So not only do you have that block of time, but in fact, in the course of Uh, inquiring and investigating into companies, they are asking us questions all the time to clarify the procedure of co-decision making because it's new and they don't understand it and they want to ensure that their interests are protected and they understand the process they're being subject to. So I think these initial inquiries were always going to take time. We have put through a, a draft decision in the case of WhatsApp Uh, before the end of 2020 also. And now there's a very strong pipeline of cases that we're going to bring through Article 60. So I I think it's a myth to think that you can uh, reason that a very large company is infringing the GDPR and apply very significant sanctions against that company without going through a process of... Uh, due process, fair procedures, and and allowing that organisation be heard uh, in terms of the findings that you're planning to make. So uh, actually, in in terms of the DPC, I would say we're a pathfinder in terms of EU DPAs. Uh, We've been a pathfinder in terms of bringing that first household platform case through Article 60 and Article 65. And of course, we spent some time today talking about transfers, the Irish DPC has uniquely been the EU DPA that has sought to clarify the law on transfers. We brought that reference case to the CJU uh, and now, as you discussed with me we earlier, we're looking uh, to give effect to it in a specific case.
0: Thanks, Helen. I just want to follow up on one of the points you made there. Um, I believe the Irish DPC recently published its annual report um, that disclosed that there were several I think around 30 um, open probes into certain big tech firms. Uh, What are the status of some of these investigations and what does your timeline for 2021 look like and perhaps are we likely to see any preliminary decisions announced soon?
4: So, as I said, the WhatsApp decision is in the Article 60 process now. It's it's a significant case uh, relating to uh, whether WhatsApp is complying with the the transparency obligations, Articles 12 to 14 of the GDPR coming behind that. I'm also decision-making in relation to a a Facebook uh, complaint made by NOYB, the NGO, Uh, I'm also decision-making on a case relating to Facebook that was around 12 breaches that they notified to the DPC uh, in short order in in 2018 and 2019. Also well-progressed are two inquiries into, into Instagram, which relate to the processing of children's data. Uh, And then we've also issued a a draft inquiry report now to Google on its processing of location data. And there are several more also at an advanced stage of inquiry where we're serving the inquiry reports uh, onto these large companies, uh, and then they'll move to my desk for decision-making. So I've estimated, and I think conservatively so, that we should be bringing six or seven bigger cases through Article 60
0: this year. Very interesting, thank you, Helen there. Um, Bajana Bellamy, I want to bring you in here because I know you've got to rush off fairly soon. Um, Bearing in mind this procedural complexity of the GDPR that Helen references there, how exactly do we go about enforcement mechanisms in Europe? And I mean, do these fines actually work when we're considering that they do take a fair bit of time to impose? Uh, And perhaps you can explain to this, explain to us how this um, compares with the enforcement landscape in the U.S.
6: Sure. Um, So I'd like to sort of say one thing which um, which Helen indicated um, in her remarks. um, Advocate General Bobak also said something and I'm paraphrasing. I just haven't got the quote here. The purpose of the regulator is not to actually fine and enforce so so it's kind of you know we have sam we're having sort of strange conversations around gdpr everywhere um we sort of think that in order for gdpr to work we must see enforcement in order for regulators to be good regulators they must enforce and impose big fines i wouldn't i would say we're completely wrong the purpose of helen dixon's office is not to find and enforce the purpose of data protection authorities to not even ensure compliance with the law, but to deliver good data protection. And so the question is, how do you deliver good data protection? Do you do that with a carrot or stick? Do you do that with a combination of things? And I actually think we've got too much focus and, and um, on just enforcement, right? Uh, there is no doubt enforcement is an important driver. Um, and I remember in my previous job, um, uh, you know, it was because of one mistake that we did that, you know, my budget uh, quadrupled and my team quadrupled, but I can also tell you that I got much more support from my leadership when there was a praise of what my uh, former company was doing uh, as a result of a public speech that I have done that went back to my leadership. Right. So we have to understand what motivates organizations to do well. And Cisco survey has kind of said that, right, there are such business reasons uh, competitive reasons, trust reasons why businesses like Cisco and others are investing in privacy and privacy management programs, right? Because it's actually good for business. And so regulators need to understand those motivators and actually lean on to that, right? Incentivize good behaviors. And then, of course, publish those who repeatedly negligently make, make mistakes. So talking about how U.S. does this, we always used to... Um, uh, have kind of wishful thinking, and I think people used to say, if only we could have U.S. enforcement and European rules, that would be the best solution. Because actually, Federal Trade Commission was a, and still is, I think, a formidable regulator, and they do. Um, uh, have sort of really impactful fines as well, but what the FTC also does, and I really appreciate that, is actually that they have got this sort of so-called consent decrees where they require, and Christopher can tell you that, he was the chief privacy officer, they require organizations to implement a privacy management program, to change their policies, procedures, to ensure that the mistake doesn't happen again they make sure that there is oversight. Uh, And certainly two seminal um, decisions in the case of Facebook and um, uh, Equifax, um, sorry, Experian, uh, showed us that um, this is the way for FTC to actually go about this, right? And even to the point where these organizations are required not only to have a comprehensive privacy and security program, but to have the oversight privacy committee at the board level, right? Uh, certifications of senior executives, stone so from the top, and that is what makes a change. Um, so I think I would love to see those style of enforcement, if you like, uh, from the European regulators, but I would also like us to use more accountability, which is actually enshrined in GDPR, which Cisco talks about privacy management programs as a proactive action from organizations. As a measure to actually in, uh, um, uh, deliver return on investment, and also to act as a mitigation, as in when something goes wrong, because you know what, even the best companies make mistakes. Security breaches happen to the best, pro- you know, best um, uh, uh, providers and companies and, and engineers, and you can see that at the moment, right? And so it's important that we also take into account all the positive accountability measures that companies put in place to deliver privacy, deliver security, because I repeat, the purpose of this law is not to find and and, and catch a thief, but it's actually to make a change in the way we handle data and to protect people's right to privacy, while we also use data for beneficial purposes.
0: Thanks, Bajana. I want to bring in Chris Gao on this one, because it'd be interesting to see uh, what motivates the industry to do well here, Chris Gao, Do you agree with Bajana there, Um, you know, in terms of the biggest accelerator of privacy protocols within an organisation? What type of enforcement mechanism do you think is most effective for the industry?
5: No, I mean, what is saying is music to my ears. I mean, we couldn't agree more. I think it's absolutely clear that you know, I, I don't want to say that the idea of fines isn't a motivator. It's a shorthand when you go internally to be able to explain we need to do this because there's that threat. And frankly, also, of course, the, the regulators are important uh, stakeholders for us, and we have very uh, detailed and complex discussions with them, uh, particularly as we're moving through on different types of uh, certification. For example, we're in process on our uh, binding corporate rules for processes right now. Um, what I would say is the one thing that is a big uh, return for us is, of course, the things that we see out of the uh, of the study, like um, you know, regi- reduction in uh, sales delays or reduction in uh, breaches and impact of breaches or enabling innovation. Another thing which helps us to work these things through is our customers, right? Um, frankly, I'd say that they're the main people who are our interlocutors who really enforce uh, change in the way that we. Uh, design or offer our solutions Um, and I would say right now frankly we've just been through a year where there has been a lot of upheaval Uh, there's been we've seen uh, frankly as a result of the um, the pandemic and the uh, the the changes international data transfers that there's been a, a diminishment in the return on investment that we're getting from privacy this year I mean it's still almost Two, two euros for every euro you invest, right? So if that was my return in my bank account, I'd be very happy. But we have to bear in mind that's a reduction from almost three the uh, year before. And, and frankly, I think this this localization piece and the push around terms too definitely has had that impact. Because if you look at those business benefits that I've just described, well, you know, that none of those are, are added to by enforcing uh, uncertainty about transfers of data across border. Right? And in fact, we're seeing that they're, they're being um, uh, diminished as a result of that. At the same time, of course, it brings a lot of cost. Right? I mean, if you have to figure out a new way, a new architecture for how you handle data uh, as a result of not being sure whether you can transfer to the US anymore, uh, that that isn't for free. Uh, so I, I, for me, when I'm looking at this this year, I mean, the, the big drivers to your initial question uh, the big drivers for us are what our customers are saying and the benefits we get. So if there's uncertainty in our customers, which is happening because of the, uh, the, the threat to the data flows, of course that has an impact on us uh, and the way that we do business and the way that we have to uh, invest as a result of that. Thanks, Chris. Um-
0: I've got a question here in the chat for Christopher Hoff, um, and we have a member of our online audience who asks, are you concerned by EU calls for data localization here? And this of course refers to perhaps the EU's new data strategy and uh, recent calls for the EU to keep more data uh, on its own shores, bearing in mind the perceived risks of sending data to the United States. How do our American uh, friends reflect on this new perhaps trend or tendency in the EU to support calls for data localization?
3: Thanks Sam. Uh, I am concerned about data localization um, you know de facto or um, you know built into the law and uh that is why I think that it's best for you know for long-term solutions for us to focus on uh, something that Vice President Yorova mentioned, which is the the G7 and OECD work streams on trusted government access to data, and like-minded democracies uh, setting up a, a set of principles for government access to data that we can all agree to and that we are all in practice living out, um, because the, the this this narrative that's um, that the U.S. is different than EU member states uh, in practice is, uh, it's tiring for us in in the U.S. and it has been uh, years or decades long and it distracts all of us from this conversation about totalitarian regimes like, uh, you know, China that, that we all do business with. And so there's a lot of long-term reframing of the conversation. There's also, um, you know, of course there are enhancements that, to be made to privacy shield that um, add more transparency and procedural safeguards, but we've, we've already uh, drank half the bottle of medicine and we're, we're, we're drinking the rest. And um, you know, it's, it's medicine that is uh, equally applicable to you member states as well. And I, I think that that's a challenge and that's, a conversation that we're, we're now starting to have with everyone um, because data localization is not a good solution for any of us. And the it's there are a lot of awesome things about the GDPR, but uh, there have been 13 adequacy decisions in the past 26 years since the original directive went into place, and one of them keeps getting knocked down. Um, so interoperable frameworks like the cross-border privacy rules, um, I think, have to be the future because, um, this is a close partnership and we do share similar values. Uh, To to say that we're miles apart when it's a matter of degrees is uh, I don't think the right conversation.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Christopher Hoff there. We're going to go to our closing statements in just a moment, but before we do, um, I'd like to pick up on something that Christopher just said with regards to um, working with partners in the Far East and China. Helen Dixon, you now have TikTok on your books Uh, at the Irish DPC. Um, We've heard concern from some national DPAs on the app, uh, particularly I believe from the Italian um, DPA. What new challenges uh, does the platform pose for you in terms of data protection standards, perhaps when we think about the nature of the app itself and who is using the app?
4: So you're right, TikTok uh, I I think was originally planning to have its main establishment in the UK. It had its European headquarters in the UK and then Brexit seems to have um, cut through that. And so from my point of view, rather late in the day, uh, they then set about establishing uh, their main establishment and significant presence in Ireland, which they've now done Um, So there are a number of challenges in relation to TikTok for the Irish DPC. First of all is now to get to know TikTok, to get to know and understand the service, to get to know and understand uh, the data protection team uh, in in Dublin that's now working on it. We've had a significant number of meetings with TikTok since December when we confirmed uh, on behalf of EU DPAs that we now accepted it met the objective criteria for main establishment in Ireland. So so some of the issues with TikTok relate to a complexity around distinguishing what are actually online safety issues from actual personal data processing issues. So you mentioned Italy and that very tragic case that arose around a blackout challenge where a 10-year-old girl uh, died uh, at the end of last year. And um, in that case, it does seem to have been a case of harmful content. But we're using the opportunity uh, that uh, that case represents in terms of a 10-year-old child being on the platform to now look very intensively at what TikTok's procedures are for identifying children on the platform. If the platform is intended for 13 ages, uh, age 13 rather, and over, how is it uh, that there are children under that age operating on the platform What sort of verification systems do they have? And and as we're talking to TikTok, they're making changes all the time. Already they've implemented a button in Italy, which will now roll out uh, to the rest of the EU member states that's going to make it easier for other users to report that they consider that they've identified an underage user on the platform. So I, I think there's a lot of work for us to do. You introduced the topic of TikTok by mentioning China. Uh TikTok tells us that EU data is transferred to the US and not to China. However, we have understood that there is the possibility that uh, maintenance and AI engineers in China may be accessing the data. And so there's a whole lot more we need to understand about all of that. And so intensive engagement with TikTok is ongoing.
0: Right. Thank you, Helen. That's a bit of a bombshell to finish on there uh, with regards to the transfer of data, perhaps to the Chinese mainland. Uh, But that's the subject of an entirely separate panel. Um, Unfortunately, we're rapidly reaching the end of today's session. Uh, I can see that Bojana Bellamy has already left us, uh, unfortunately. Uh, But I would like to return now to our panellists to offer them the opportunity to deliver some short short 30-second closing statements. And perhaps we could start with Christopher Hoff from the U.S. Department of Commerce.
3: Thanks, Sam. Uh, And and fellow panelists, I I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Um, I think it's been a good discussion. Uh, I will reflect on a couple of things again that Vice President Yarova said. One is this, um, I don't know that's referred to it by name, but this privacy by design principle that um, privacy is and other legitimate interests are not a zero-sum conversation or game. Uh, this is not a conversation of privacy versus uh, national security. We, we can have both. Um, and I think that, that we're, we're coming to agreement on the, the terms of exactly what that looks like in, in places like the OECG, OECD work that we're doing. Um, I'll reiterate that, that what I said at the beginning, which is that um, finalizing the the Privacy Shield enhancement is a priority of the administration because it not only uh, addresses the Privacy Shield trans two issues, but it, it will also study the ground under standard contractual clause transfers, um, and the uh, and what we're focusing on in the world to to get around or past this data localization. Um, is interoperable frameworks um, I, I've said it a bunch of times but um, that is that is a focus of this administration and and those before it um, and our relationship with Europe is a close partnership and we're grateful for that we we do cherish our similar values um, and so we look forward to the the future uh, relationship
0: great thank you there uh, Christopher Hoff from the US Department of Commerce for his closing statement. Interoperability could be a key for international data transfers, he says. I'd like now to go to Chris Gao from Cisco for his closing statement.
5: Thanks, Sam. I think there's been two main themes of the discussion we're having today. One about the pandemic and the sense of uh, how resilient privacy has been uh, during that. I think we've seen from both the study and in fact, uh, the comments of Vice President Yarova, that it hasn't been this choice between public health and data protection, and in the end they've actually gone very neatly uh, together in that context, which I think is uh, very good news. The second big theme has been around the international data transfers and the um, uh, and data localization, and how we find our path through post uh, post and and post Brexit in this space. Uh, frankly, I think that Christopher Hoff touches very well when he talks about having interoperable frameworks. And if there is one silver lining, lining from the Shrems II, it maybe is that the EU and the US does have to sit down again in, in the replacement for privacy shield and figure out you know, what, what are these wrinkles, which in the way of understanding one another's regimes, uh, both in terms of the commercial side, but probably more importantly around uh, national security in the way that we handle data. Uh, I think everyone's all ears to, to have a, a positive outcome from that. And uh, and I think we have a very uh, optimistic view on the, the path forward for the future.
0: Great. Thank you very much there, Chris Gow from Cisco. Perhaps there are cultural differences at play, historical and cultural differences at play with regards to the Different approaches adopted by the EU and the US in the field of privacy. Uh, Some interesting points there, Chris, that I hope in the future we can return to. Um, I'd now like to turn to Helen Dixon, Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner, for her closing statement.
4: I'll finish then by talking about what a strong legal framework the GDPR is. And I think it's really stood uh, the test in terms of the pandemic over the last year and has provided important guardrails for us as, as we've handled new challenges, all of which have involved the processing of personal data. We know from Eurobarometer surveys that there's very big levels of awareness amongst the public and obviously amongst organizations of the GDPR, but we're still in some cases not understanding the GDPR, even if we're aware of it. And that's natural, as Advocate General Bobek said, it is still in its infancy, and functions like the role of the Data Protection Officer are completely new in EU law and are going to take some time to build. So really, I want to underline that the DPC is very committed to playing a leadership role in building that understanding of the GDPR and how it applies in contextual, uh, detailed scenarios, because there's a lot of talk all the time about that's obviously an infringement, that company doesn't comply. But actually, unless you've stepped through the analysis you can't make such a statement. And uh, we're committed to providing the reasoning when we do make decisions.
0: Wonderful, thank you very much for your closing statement there, Helen Dixon, Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner. And that brings us to the end of today's session. It really has been a jam packed uh, hour and 15 minutes or so. Thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you again next time.